that's pretty fair. Hey, if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1? If you're a guest, my name is Jonathan. I serve as one of the pastors, and it's an honor to do so. We are continuing in our series in 1 Peter, and I, I realized something um, as I was kind of preparing for this week, and I was really kind of mapping out and just kind of planning some things. I realized that the pace we're going, we're going to finish this series about mid-March of 2020. And that's a problem for me. Because I have a new series I've already intended to start in January. So that means we got to finish this one by Christmas. Um, because we need to talk about Christmas at Christmas. So we need to finish this even before Christmas, right? And so that means y'all need to start listening really fast. And so we're just going to jump right into it. Um, because I want us, we're going we're gonna to cover verses 13 through 25 in chapter 2. So 1 Peter chapter 2, 13 to 25. And we're going to read that together in just a second. But I want to go ahead and give you the main point of the sermon before we read the passage. Because I want it to be at the front of your mind as we're reading this together. So that you can kind of see what the text is saying as we read this saying. And so the main point of the sermon tonight, if you're filling in and taking notes, is this. As a Christian, we are called... To suffer unjustly in order to display the grace of Jesus. Let me read that again. As a Christian, we are called to suffer unjustly in order to display the grace of Jesus. All right, let's read 1 Peter chapter 2, 13 to 25. It'll be on the screen or we're in page 1015 in the ESV Bibles. It reads this, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now, I'm going to pause and give commentary as we go, because some of these things aren't going to be in the main point of the sermon, so I want to highlight them here because we just don't have time to, un- to cover every word within this. So I want to point out that verse 13 said, But be subject for the Lord's sake. Let's not forget that the whole purpose of this is for the Lord's sake. For His worship, for His glory, for service to Him. And he says in verse 15, This is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of the foolish people. So keep in mind the what, which is being subject to all supreme rule and authority of human institution, is the what, but the why is, so that we can demonstrate goodness for the Lord's sake. Verse 16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but as servants of God. We've got to see the play on words here in verse 16, where it translates ESV, servants of God, it's the Greek word for slave. Now, if you notice in the ESV, there's a footnote that tells you that, but if you go to the introduction, it tells you kind of the methodology of why they chose certain words, and it tells us that the translators intentionally uses the word servants instead of slaves because of the context for many of us, when we think of slavery, we think of slavery in America. And we think of slavery in a specific way, a lot of us, when the slavery that is often in Scripture is still not okay, but it's still not often equal to that. And so if we see slaves and we think antebellum slavery here in America, that's not exactly the same picture as what we see here. But still, I want us to get the point 
that he's saying, live as people who are free. Notice the word language, free. But not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as slaves to God. So we are free to human institutions, but because we are slaves to God, we submit to those human institutions. See the very important distinction that he's making from the get-go as he talks about this idea of subjection, that we are ultimately not under the human institution. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are under God as our ruler. He says in verse 17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Verse 18, servants, once again, the same Greek word for slaves. So slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. Here's where we're going to start seeing this language of unjust that we talked about in the main point of the sermon. For this is a gracious thing. When, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it and endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For, thi- for to this thing, which is suffering unjustly, for to this you have been called... Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin And live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep. But now have returned to the shepherd. And the overseers of your souls. This week I was um, just looking. And I came across um, some examples of adults. Who were telling about moments in childhood. Where they misunderstood something as a child. So let me give some examples of those. Aaron. Um, legit thought his mom's name was mom. So when people called asking for Debbie, he said, they, you have the wrong number, hung up, and his mom always wondered why her friends never kept in touch. Will used to drive by a casino a lot as a kid, and one time he finally asked his stepmom, um, what is that casino? And she said, it's a place where people go and flush money down the toilet. And it was for years, he honestly thought that's what happened, and he thought that was the dumbest thing ever. Madeline once got in trouble for stealing something that was advertised as priceless because she thought it was free. Linda used to travel to different places, uh, driving around with her family, and she would always see these signs that would say lots for sale, and she always wondered lots of what. Stephanie thought Labor Day was when all pregnant women had their babies. On occasion, Carrie would hear the news that someone was shot at gunpoint, and she kept wondering why people visited a town called Gunpoint. Now, for a personal example, true story, it wasn't until middle school that I learned that RIP on a tombstone meant rest in peace. Because one time, as a kid on TV, I heard that it meant remember if possible, and I honestly thought that's what rest in peace or IAP meant. I always thought it was dark humor, but I was like, I guess people are trying to lighten up the fact that their friend died, so they put remember if possible. 
I give these examples because we can take ordinary truths that can be so simple, but if we misunderstand them because we don't understand the context, we can gravely misunderstand the point. These examples have been funny misunderstandings. However, tonight, if you miss the main point of this text, it will not be a funny misunderstanding. And in fact, it will be painful. It will be hurtful. Because many, as we process these truths together, if we misunderstand them, we can feel and see and think that we are put in certain situations just for the sake of hurt. And applying this truth can be hurtful. So let me read it again. The main point of the sermon, that as a Christian... We are called to suffer unjustly in order to display the grace of Jesus. Now, once again, with the desire to not be misunderstood, let me try to explain what I'm not saying before I explain what the text is saying. Maybe that will help us. Three things I'm not saying tonight. First, I'm not saying that as humans, you are called to suffer unjustly. Very important distinction. There is suffering all around us in the world. There's a lot of unjust suffering in the world. We see it all the time. And I am not, and the text is not saying that God has instituted that suffering and we are called to it. But as humans, we are not called to unjust suffering. None of us should suffer for anything that is a part of our humanness. We should not suffer for our race. We should not suffer for our socioeconomic status, our gender, our political opinion, or any other reason for simply being human. Let me illustrate. I had some family um, who were uh, missionaries in Turkey. They were lifetime uh, career missionaries in Turkey, and they decided to move back and come back to the U.S. because of persecution. Now, I want to understand something. When I remember having a conversation with them, we were processing the truth that there are many times that Christ calls Christians to face persecution for the sake of the gospel, which is kind of the main point of the sermon tonight. Uh, We're processing that how did you make the decision to come home? And he said, Jonathan, it's, it's, because it's, it's not because of persecution of Christianity. It's because what is going on right now politically in Turkey has a lot to do with a political uh, person who's now living in America. And so they see Americans as anti-government to Turkey. And I'm facing persecution because I'm American, not because I'm a Christian. And he said, I don't feel called to face undefensible persecution simply because I'm an American. Now, that's not to say he's not proud to be American. He's proud to be American. Don't miss my point. The point is that in a non-battle context, there is no reason for he and to put his uh, 13-year-old daughter and his other two kids in a difficult situation just because of their nationality. He said, if it was because we were facing persecution because of our faith, that's a completely potentially different story. But we don't feel called to face unjust suffering simply because. Now, recognizing they had friends. They had friends that had been arrested simply because that they were American. They had friends, specifically, they had three tutors that were helping them, that they were working with, that were part of just, uh, they were Turkish people that were that one day they went to visit and just were no longer there because they had been arrested. In a year's time, they had put almost uh, uh, 600,000 people in prison in Turkey in the last year that they were there. Point simply is, is that there is a big difference in me saying that as a Christian, the text is calling us to suffering at times for the sake of the gospel. But I am not saying simply because we are human. See that distinction. Second, I am not saying that the purpose of you being a Christian is to suffer unjustly. Christ did not call us to be his followers so that we could subject so that he could subject us to unjust suffering. 
Suffering unjustly is not the reason he called us to himself. However, it is a very real, unavoidable reality. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 22, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, which implies persecution, which implies suffering. 2 Timothy 3, 12, indeed, if all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, which implies suffering. Suffering unjustly is not the purpose of which you are called, but it is a reality of being a Christian. Third, I am not saying that suffering unjustly is good. I'm not saying that. The text is not saying that. Notice the language. It is unjust suffering. That implies that it's not good. The purpose is not to argue that suffering is good, but it is gracious. More on that later, but suffice it to say for now that I'm not trying to sugarcoat this and just simply say that suffering is what we've been called to and it's a good thing. It is not a good thing. It is an unjust thing, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't have a redemptive purpose, which it does. So now that I've attempted quickly, somewhat briefly, to say what I am not saying, let's say what I am saying. All throughout Peter, as we look at the context, I want us to do one more thing before we jump in. Is there is a what and a why to every text. A what and a why. What is it telling you to do and why is it telling you to do it? The what in this text is to subject yourself to all human authority and all human institutions. The second thing in this text is slaves and servants to be subject to their masters. That is the what. But the why is what I want to spend the majority of the time on. Why? Because if we don't understand the why in context, we'll never be able to rightly interpret the what. So with the why in context, it's a picture of suffering, which is the main point of the sermon. So I want us to do a quick survey through Peter, through 1 Peter, and what he says about suffering. This will not be on the screen. And so if you have your Bibles, I'll give the reference, and you can read along with me. We're going to read uh, a few references. By the end of today, I realize we're going to read about 70% of 1 Peter throughout today. So we got a lot of text to cover, but I will read quickly. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 says this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, though it perishes and attested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, I'm picking any text that references suffering, just FYI. 1 Peter 1.11, inquiring what person or time of Christ, the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when the predicted sufferings of Christ and his subsequent glories would come. Our text, which we won't read again, um, is the next in reference, but skipping it and going to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for once, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. 
For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange was happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory in God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will become of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if righteousness is scarcely, if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And last reference, chapter 5, verses 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing what this. Excuse me. Knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by brotherhood throughout the world. Pause for a second. This is why we read on a weekly basis for those that are being persecuted around the world, because we're mindful, and the text is mindful of them. We'll come back and we'll read, or we'll pray for our uh, the church in a second. Verse ten. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let us not forget that Peter is writing this letter while in persecution himself in Rome, would eventually be martyred by Nero in Rome. He writes this letter to those that are being persecuted. He is well aware of sufferings, and he's well aware what it means to suffer unjustly. So he is not mistaken when he says in our passage in chapter 2, verse 21, For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you may follow in his steps. Two truths overall um, for why Christ is calling us to suffer unjustly. First, is Christ suffered for you in order to show grace to you. Truth number one, Christ has suffered for you in order to show grace to you. Coming back to our text in verse 24, it says this explicitly. It says this, he himself, Christ, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Listen to this next phrase. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseers of your souls. Do you notice that in the foundation, in the core of this text, of the end of chapter 2, even going on into chapter 3, he puts this part right here and says, I'm giving you some what's, absolutely. But the whole foundational why is that you are to at times suffer unjustly is because Christ suffered unjustly for you. And he suffered unjustly for you to show grace to you. He himself bore our sins in his body on a tree. And then he goes on to say, by his wounds you have been healed. Think, just, just take a moment and imagine that imagery for a second. Imagine an imagery where someone is broken and in hurt and in need of healing. But it takes the unjust sacrifice of someone else who takes on wounds so that we can 
be healed. This is the sacrifice of Christ. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the reality that Christ suffered unjustly in order to show grace to us. But I want to ask the question, was that necessary? Right? It's, it's one thing for it to have happened. It's another thing for it to have had to have happened. So we recognize, the text makes it clear, and we know that Christ did suffer for us unjustly in order to show grace to us. But did he have to do that? I would argue that the text says, yes, absolutely. Let me ask this question, and we'll get into the text where it says this, but just practically, is it possible to show grace to someone who doesn't deserve it? Right? Is it possible to show grace to someone who doesn't deserve it? Now, I see you going, yes, and I realize that I, I think you're even missing the point because the answer I'm getting at is no. And here's why. The definition of grace is giving someone something they don't deserve. Right? The definition of grace is giving someone something they don't deserve. So if they deserve it, is it, is it grace anymore to give it to them? So you can show acts of love and kindness to someone who hasn't done anything to do that, and that's just considered nice and kind. But for it to be grace, it requires that person not to deserve it. So you recognize that when we talk about as Christians, we want to show the grace of Jesus, you realize you can only show the grace of Jesus to people who have done you wrong? Look at this. I want to read this text, and I want to read another text. But look in this text, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 19. For this is a gracious thing, Now, gracious thing is accurately translated there, but it's just the one word for grace. But it it flows better in the English to say gracious thing, but it's not just a gracious thing. It says this, for this is grace when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. He says this in verse 24, what credit is it to you if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if you do good... And suffer for it and endure. This is grace. In the sight of God. Recognize this. That if you and I are facing suffering justly. That we deserve it. Then that's, that's not grace. Grace can be applied when we are suffering when we don't deserve it. it Jesus says this exact same thing in Luke chapter 6. If you want to flip to Luke chapter 6. It's not on the screen. But it's on page 862 in the ESV Bibles. 862, it says this, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies, do good. And lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. But be merciful even as your father is merciful. Now the text alone is helpful. But I want to highlight three things to you real fast. Go back to verse 32. If you love those who love you. What benefit is that to you? The Greek word there is grace. If you love those who love you, what grace is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good those who do good to you, what grace is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what grace is that to you? Now, I don't want 
tempt you to think, oh, well, why didn't they translate it grace there? Why did they translate it benefit, benefit, and credit? Well, because in context, benefit makes more sense. So you can trust. That's an accurate translation. But I want to bring out the nuance of what is being said in Luke chapter 6 and what is being said here. That if we are nice to someone who's nice to us, that's not grace. That's just kindness. You should be kind. Don't, Don't miss the point. But that's just kindness. Right? But if you are kind to someone who is not kind to you, now it's grace. See the point? You have to have undeservingness for grace to happen. You you have to have unjust suffering for grace to happen. Therefore, if you and I, because of our sin, need the grace of Jesus, it required for him to suffer unjustly. It was not possible for him to be just And forgive us as a holy God without him stepping in in humility, Philippians 2 says. Taking on the form of flesh and a servant and dying on the cross at the hands of humans. You realize grace requires unjust suffering. Therefore, if you and I are going to live lives full of grace to the world around us, then you better expect unjust suffering. It's actually required to show the grace of Jesus to the world around us. See, the tendency for us is when we suffer unjustly is to go, oh, that is unjust, which it is, right? It is, absolutely. I'm not saying it's good. It's unjust. But our response is to take up what is rightfully ours and stand our ground when maybe it's an opportunity actually to model what Christ did for us Which brings me to truth number two. Christ suffered, leaving you an example to follow. Not only did Christ suffer in order to show grace to us, but he actually left us an example to follow. Look at the text with me. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. It's clear. If you're wondering where I get the creativity of my sermons, come straight from the text. It's so simple. He left us an example to follow so that you might follow in his steps. Verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Christ suffered, leaving us an example to follow in. And subpoint A should be this from the text. Cause of suffering should not be sin. This is already clear, but let's look at this. Peter makes it, points this out when he says this in verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. So just in case you were wondering, did Christ actually suffer because he deserved it? Peter's going, no, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. So the example for us to follow is that we should not cause anything. We should not cause our suffering because of our sin. Peter would go on to say that if you suffer as a murderer or a liar or whatever it may be, and he lists a few things out, he says, well, that's what you deserve. That's just part of it. But it's gracious when you suffer for following Christ, when you don't deserve it, but suffering and unjust suffering comes upon you. But let's be clear, the example you and I are to follow as we model this out is the cause of suffering should not be sin. We should not be doing anything to bring that suffering on. But then second... The effect of suffering should not be sin. The result of suffering in our lives should not produce sin within us. Verse 23, when Christ was reviled, meaning when he began to suffer unjustly, 
he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. This may be the most important phrase of the entire text. See, because rightfully so, when we see unjust suffering in the world, in someone else, or in our lives, rightfully so, we instinctually go, this is not fair. This is unjust. Rightfully so, that should be the case. And no doubt, Christ had every right to go, this is not okay. Angels come down and just demolish them, right? I'd imagine if I was Jesus, what might have been the temptation? Like, you know, we we tend to want to one-up people all the time. And when Pontius Pilate was like, I'm king, right? I could kill you. And Jesus was like, oh yeah? Well, I created everything. You know, like, and who knows what he could have done in that moment. Imagine the temptation to stand up and go, this is not okay. This is not fair. This is not just. But what does it say? He didn't ignore justice. See, I want us to get this. When we say that as Christians, Christ has called us to suffer unjustly, to show grace to others, it is not to say to be passive towards unjustness. It does not say to do nothing. But what it says here, but Jesus continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. You and I can stand up for injustice, and when it deals with human things, we should. And at times we do as Christians, but we recognize that the text may actually be calling us to keep our mouths quiet at times for the sake of showing grace, but we're not just being passive and being run over, but in this moment, it's not a show of weakness, but it's actually a show of strength because we're trusting in the one who judges justly. See, you and I can suffer unjustly as Christians. Because we know that Christ is on his throne. And we know that there is a just judge who will make all things right. But in this moment, we count it as a blessing, not a curse. But a blessing that Christ gives us the opportunity as Christians to show grace. Because remember, we can't show grace without unjust suffering. That means at times, as an opportunity for the gospel, Christ is going to allow you to suffer unjustly. He's going to allow me to suffer unjustly. But our calls of our suffering should not be sin. And our response to that suffering should not be sin. But it should be grace always. Now I I don't want to in any way minimize our application of this. Meaning that there are a lot of ways that you and I can begin to think to apply this in our lives. And we should. But I don't want us to miss the really the context of the writing and the context of most Christians in the world as they read this. See, you and I read this, and I think about a, a simple example where, uh, you know, someone stole my parking spot, and there's an opportunity for me to be gracious. Like, I think of that, or I may think of where I may be in the workplace, not my workplace, but applying it to you, maybe in your workplace where someone steals uh, intellectual property from you, or they steal an idea from you, and they take credit for it, and you Just go like, this isn't fair, this is unjust, and so what do you do? You attack or you show grace, right? We can think of all these examples, and there are good examples, but I want us to remember that there are 250 million Christians in the world that live in 11 countries, or will live in the top 50 countries, 11 of which those countries, that if anybody found out that they're a Christian, they would likely die for their faith. See, when you and I talk about suffering unjustly, Yes, I'm not minimizing the application for us, but let's remember that the majority of the people reading this passage in the world 
that are Christians are thinking about life and death scenarios where you and I are just thinking about I'm angry or not. And so I don't want to minimize, but I do want us to take a moment. I want us to be conscious of that. I want to read a little bit, and we're going to pray for the country this week that, we've been, that we're praying for. And I want to get the prayer card out. So if you would, if you have a bulletin, go ahead and grab a card. We're going to pray for the country of Iraq in a second. But here's a report that was um, issued and that the, uh, actually came out this past summer in 2019. I'm just going to read portions of it, but it was a, it was a report set out by uh, British, British Parliament asking to do research on Christian persecution around the world. And this was the report that came back. Here's a part of it. Just reading aspects of it. Quoting. There is widespread evidence showing that today Christians constitute by far the most widely persecuted religion. Finding once again that Christianity is the most persecuted religion in the world, the Pew Research Center concluded that in 2016 Christians were targeted in 144 countries, which had gone up by 20 countries in the last year. Also, according to the Pew Research, Christians have been harassed in more countries than any other religious group and have suffered harassment in many of the heavily uh, Middle Eastern type countries and North African countries. Reporting a shocking increase of persecution Christians globally in 2019, uh, Open Doors, which is the organization that we get the prayer cards from, Open Doors uh, reported that 245 million Christians live in the top 50 countries of highest persecution, which was a raise of 30 million just in the last year alone. That in the last five years, there was one country, North Korea, that represented high persecution. And in the last five years, that has risen to 11 countries that represent high persecution. In, um, in 2016, there were two, or 736 attacks in 2016 specifically known within Christian churches, which had doubled just from the year before, and it's continued to be on the rise. In 2017, in this last bit, in 2017, Persecuted and Forgotten, an organization, a report, found that Christian persecution said this, in terms of number of people involved and the gravity of the crimes committed and their impact, it is clear that persecution of Christians is today worse than any time in history. I read that not at all. To go, poor us Christians. Not saying that at all. And I'm not saying that antagonistic to anybody else. Let me be clear. But I am simply saying this. That when you and I talk about persecution, we must first and foremost be grateful that the privilege that Christ has given us in living in a relatively extremely safe place to hold our faith and to have freedom of religion. And that we are grateful and so the application is twofold. We want to pray for those that don't have that privilege. We want to pray for those who take the main point of this truth and says that I've been called as a Christian to suffer unjustly, to show grace, and that may mean my life. We want to pray for them who apply the main point of this in such a severe way. And we want to pray for our brothers and sisters. But we also does not minimize our situation. The application for us is to recognize that, yes, that we the next time face suffering that was undeserved we could get mad and angry and we might fight those emotions but we also can take a moment and go I'm grateful that the Lord's given me an opportunity to show goodness and grace it could be as severe as persecution of your life or it could be as simple as even example for us yesterday see we had our fall uh, our fall retreat not fall retreat fun day both begin with enough close enough we had our fun day yesterday and it was a great afternoon great day 
we get to the place where we were supposed to have our fun day, and if those who came to fun day, you may not have known this happened, but we ended up not where we were supposed to be. Because we got to where we were supposed to be, and we had, they, the parks had kind of double booked us. We had, we had a permit for the spot, someone else had a permit for the spot, there was some confusion over what the permits were valid or not, the name had our name on the spot, and so I had an option, we had an option in that moment where I could go, you know what, this is our spot, but I looked around and I noticed that they were unpacking for a birthday party that clearly they had given invitations to. They had rented a U-Haul van to carry all their stuff to. And I had this moment of going, I can stand the ground and I can go, this is our spot. Mindful that just of that, but also the mindful of the fact that I was wearing a New Hope church shirt, right? So it was like, I'm a Christian, right? Let's just let's be. So I had an opportunity. We had an opportunity that moment where I said, the only option is praise the Lord. That this is annoying, this is frustrating, but here's an opportunity to show a good deed. And so I said, you know what? I didn't know we had all these tables that were provided by the park, so we brought tables. So guess what? We can move over here to this field, we'll set up tables, and here's an opportunity to end things peacefully and just do a good deed. It was frustrating, sure. We had to carry things an extra like 50 feet, no big deal. But there's this moment where we go, the options are, I can stand my ground and go, this is what I deserve, give it to me. Or it's just something as simple as going, but here's an opportunity to do a good deed. See, when I give these illustrations, it could be persecution costing us our lives. Or it could just be something simple as, hey, you can have this parking spot. Or, or you can do this, or you can do that. But just simply doing good. We want, and the text tells us, and remember the text from last week. 1 Peter chapter 2, and I'll end with this. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. When it means for us as Christians to suffer unjustly, to show the grace of Jesus, this end, to show the grace of Jesus, that God allows us to be in these situations so that we can show his grace to others. Now, and I am ending with this, I want to read this quickly, but what about the part where it says, servants, subject yourselves to your masters? You haven't talked about that. This is the what. Is the Bible prescribing an unjust, dehumanizing structure of slavery? No. The Bible is telling us how to live faithfully for the sake of the gospel amidst the given reality that you're in. There's a difference. The Bible is describing what you ought to do in this situation, but it is not prescribing that situation to exist. Notice the difference. It's describing that as slaves or as those within a citizenship of a country, subject yourselves so that you can show grace when you're wrongfully done, so that you can show good news. There's a difference describing and prescribing. The same is said about subjecting yourself to authorities. Peter lists two specific entities, emperors and governors, neither of which we have today. Now, we have governors, but not governors like this. These were authoritarian dictators, and the scripture is not describing, or excuse me, prescribing that that's the only type of government we should have. It's not. But it's saying that when you're in this situation, this is how to live. Here's the point. Peter is giving specific application of common ways that we as Christians are to live out the charge to represent Christ with good works amidst unjust suffering. Were these specific biblical applications apply to us today? Then yes, we live them out. But the general principle is this. In whatever situation or position we find ourselves in, no matter how unjust that situation is, we display good works in such a way to follow Christ's example 
and to display the grace of Jesus to those who are unjust to us. In moments like this, no matter the situation, we show good works, we show grace, we show and love on our, those who persecute us. Now, once again, just so I'm not misunderstood, this is not to mean that we don't ever stand up for injustice. I'm not referring to humans. I'm referring to Christians. Humans should not suffer unjustly because of humanness. But at times, we will follow Christ's example for the sake of a greater kingdom and a greater glory. And at times, we will suffer as Christians. And we will consider that a gracious thing to be a part of. Please notice the distinction. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much.